Good morning again. Good to see you all. I hope you had a good Thanksgiving weekend. Today we are starting a new series called The Road to Christmas. And I chose this series because um, last year we didn't do the story of Christmas, so today we're just doing only the story of Christmas. We're going to really dig into it. And it occurs to me, whenever I think about the Christmas season, there's this interesting contradiction in the way our culture celebrates Christmas. That we celebrate this season one month out of the year where we're all about hope and joy and peace and love. But in the, the cultural worship of Christmas, the center of it is missing. There isn't really a reason why we should have hope, joy, peace, and love more so in December than other months, except that we've just decided to. It's like we, we have this, we've just got this cultural agreement that we're going to try and be the people we know we should be for December and then hope that it sticks. And this, this, we, you know, the continual hope is that the, joy, the, the spirit of Christmas will last all year round. And there seems to be a, just this vague hope that if we go through the Christmas season enough, if it happens to us enough times, then eventually it'll stick and we'll, we'll be like that all year round. And it never seems to do that. No matter how much we talk about peace on earth and goodwill to men, the talking about it and the singing about it doesn't seem to do anything. And that's why you also have Christmas songs like the one that we sang for communion where we talk about you know, the struggle of... Uh, he wrote that during the Civil War when the country was tearing itself apart and Christians were killing each other in the hundreds of thousands. And you know, it seemed like 1,800 years after Jesus, the world was farther from peace on earth and goodwill to men than it ever had been. And I think every generation kind of feels that way. So the question is, what, actually, what hope really is there that Christmas will change things? Especially considering how many of them we've had so far, and we don't really feel like things have been fixed by Christmas. And the main idea that I want to bring to this series, as we look at, we're going to look at the people who were in the story of Christmas. If you can't see, there's a beautiful nativity set here that was uh, donated to us by the Hansons. And um, I, I love it. I'm glad we're able to put it up here. And, and in a nativity scene, you see all these people who are a part of the Christmas story. And the thing is, Christmas didn't just happen to any of them. Each one of them, for each one of them, this moment is part of a journey that involved decisions that they had to make to be a part of this moment and to be transformed by this moment. Because this Christmas happened this year and only these people knew about it, right? The whole rest of the world, it, it happened, but they weren't changed. But these people decided, made a series of decisions that brought them to this moment. And they decided to respond to the calling of God. And so this is a moment in a journey. And so what I want us to look at throughout this Christmas season, this Advent season, is that journey toward Christmas, the decisions that we need to make, the calls that we need to respond to so that we can actually be a part of what's happening in Christmas because Christmas doesn't just happen to you. You have to respond to Christ. So we're going to start at the first place in Luke's story. Luke starts with the story of Zechariah. It's interesting, last week we ended with the last passage of Luke and we ended in the temple. And today we're going to start with the opening chapter of Luke, and we're going to start in the temple. It's kind of an interesting comparison. So I'm going to read you the story of Zechariah, and we're going to talk first about how it's kind of a weird story, and then we're going to unpack what it's really telling us about the journey toward Christmas and choosing to be a part of Christmas. 
Chapter 1, verse 5. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as a priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord." Zechariah said to the angel, How can I be sure of this? I am an old man, and my wife is well along in years. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and will not be able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he had kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. So the story of Christmas in Luke's gospel starts with a man named Zechariah and his wife, Elizabeth. And if you're familiar with the Old Testament, then you are, then this story sets off all kinds of bells. It's, it's a type scene that happens over and over again in the Bible. So you have this, this couple, Zechariah is a priest and his wife, Elizabeth, and it says both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. So these are people who are very diligent, very faithful followers of God. And at the same time, they are struggling because they don't have a child. Now for us, in our day and age, having a family is a choice. You may choose to have a family or not. You may choose to have a certain size of family or not. We have a lot of options. Back then, having a family wasn't really an option. It was an expectation and it was a need. And so you had kids, and you basically had as many kids as you could. And so the fact that they're not having kids means that they are failing socially. It means that they're failing in terms of being able to hand on their family name and the family job that they have. That job of serving in the temple is a hereditary job that he's supposed to be able to hand off. It's it's a really big deal not to be able to have kids. And you can also tell, well, if if you look at the language that's being used, Really, if you ask a scholar who knows enough Greek and Hebrew, because I didn't know any of this, um, you'll find out that there's a deeper level in this, in what's being said. Because it says, don't be afraid, Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. Now, that word prayer, it's an English word. It's translated from a Greek word, but Luke is writing down a Greek, in Greek, a a conversation that happened in Hebrew. 
right? So even Luke is translating it for us, okay? And in Hebrew, the word that's being used there, um, for various reasons you can tell what Hebrew word would have been behind that, it means a plea for grace, begging, pleading for God to be gracious. But it, it, the root word is grace. It's begging for grace. So they have been begging God for grace, begging God to be generous to them, to give them a child. So Zechariah was a righteous priest who had been begging God for a child for decades. This is about as personal as it gets, right? This is about as personal a need as you can get. And so you should expect Zechariah to be overjoyed when the angel appears to him. Because this is the first weird part about the story, is Zechariah doesn't seem to respond the way you might expect someone to respond when an angel appears to them and says, I'm going to give you exactly what you wanted. Because he says, Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. So this is a big deal that Gabriel told Zechariah that God was finally answering his prayer for a child. The main thing that is set at the core of his heart, the main desire that he has had, God is finally going to answer it and give him that, that prayer. But there's a deeper level to this. There's, there's two levels that are happening here that Zechariah, the, the, the angel and Zechariah are talking about because um, in, in the law of Moses, whose fault is it if a woman can't conceive? Woman? Nope. Not the man. In the, in the law of Moses, it's the community's fault. A woman's failure to conceive is because the community has been breaking the covenant. And so what's going on with Elizabeth is a, is a small-scale example of what's happening to Israel as a whole since they broke the covenant. So Israel is, has also been begging God for deliverance for centuries, right? And when the angel tells Zechariah, hey, you're going to have a baby, this isn't just any old baby. This baby, the, the answering Zechariah's prayer is part of answering Israel's prayer because he says, he will be a joy and a delight to you and many will rejoice because of his birth for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or fermented drink and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit before he is born. That means he's going to be like Samson or the, the judges, that whole um, not, not drinking fermented drink and being filled with the Spirit. That makes people think of Samson and God sending people to deliver, like powerful leaders to deliver his people. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Gabriel has just packed as many Old Testament references as he can into that sentence right there, talking about Elijah, talking about turning the hearts of children, parents to their children, and all that stuff. Those are, it's just layered with references to the promises God has made to deliver his people. So what he's saying is that this kid, this, your son isn't just going to be some kid. He's not just going to be a priest to take over your job. He's actually going to be the beginning of God restoring Israel. He's going to go before the Lord as God fulfills all of his promises. So God t Gabriel told Zechariah that his son would be the beginning of Israel's answer, of God's answer to the prayers of Israel. Now the question is, why did Zechariah balk at this? Why did he, 
Why did he hesitate? Why didn't he trust? Because the thing is, this is not unusual. This is like the sixth time God has done this. This is like finding barren women and giving them children is God's bread and butter. Right? Like he, he, that's how it, the whole thing started with Israel was with Abraham and Sarah. So Zechariah knows his Old Testament. This is normal stuff for God. Okay? Why did he struggle with it? Well, because the first thing we have to recognize is that God is calling Zechariah to do something. And you can tell because of the context in which God announces this, the birth of this baby. First of all, God doesn't send angels to announce the birth of a baby for no reason. Right? Like, there's a reason why you need to be told ahead of time. If God's going to send someone to tell you ahead of time, there's going to be a reason for that. Okay? And let's look at the setting for this conversation. It says, uh, Zechariah's division was on duty, and he was serving as priest before the Lord. He was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. This is a big deal. So once a day, somebody goes in to the temple and burns incense before the presence of God. Okay? And for one moment, for one part of that, right before he's done, everybody else leaves, and there's one moment when this priest is alone with God. And when, when a priest goes into the presence of God, he is representing God, or representing Israel to God. He is doing this on behalf of Israel, right? But there's a whole group of people waiting outside. It says that um, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside, and that's when the angel appeared to him. Because what's supposed to happen is the priest is supposed to come back out, and when the priest comes from the temple out to all the people waiting for him, now he represents God to the people. And normally what he would do is he would put out his hands and he would do this. That's actually where Leonard Nimoy got it. And he would, it's a, it's a Hebrew letter, and he would say the blessing that we use at the end of every service. And he would bless the people, and that blessing is coming from God. Okay? So, he is in the temple having his one-on-one time with God, and God chooses that moment to talk to him about his son. Who all is this message for? not just for Zechariah. This whole thing is supposed to be a testimony to the people outside. That's actually why he tells him to name him John. Because again, if you look back into the Hebrew, it says, your prayer or plea for grace has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you will call him John. John means God is gracious. So, the whole naming thing is supposed to be a testimony to Israel as he goes out and he tells them, hey, this is what the angel said is going to happen. It's a testimony to everybody to remind them of of what God has said and the promises God has made. So God actually wanted Zechariah to share this news with the whole nation. That That is part of what Zechariah is responding to when he says, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. That's, that's part of what he's responding to. Now, now we can understand why he might hesitate. Because this isn't just God saying, hey, you're finally going to have a kid. Or even, hey, your, your, your wife who's past time of childbearing is going to have a kid and that kid is going to save Israel. He's saying, hey, I know your wife's not pregnant. I want you to go out and tell all of these worshipers that she's going to get pregnant and that that child is going to be the beginning of the deliverance of Israel knowing that all those people are then going to go home to their places around Judea, around Galilee, maybe even around the Mediterranean, and say, you're never going to guess what the priest said at church today. 
So you can imagine on the one hand how hard it would be if you found out that you got your hopes up and then it didn't happen. Now imagine that you have put your entire career, your standing as a priest on the line to tell all of Israel that this is going to happen. I mean, depending on how strictly they enforce the law of Moses, you're putting your life on the line because if it doesn't happen, you're a false prophet and... What God is calling Zechariah to do involves real risk. It involves real consequences. And and what the the angel, when he responds, he says that um, because you, the the consequences he's going to experience are because you didn't believe. That word is the same word, the root word for faith. And here's here's where where we get wrong with faith. Okay, so we watched, my, my family watched a movie last night. We watched the Polar Express. And there's a key moment in the Polar Express when the main character says, I believe, I believe, I believe. And, and that's, a, that's a very important moment. What he means is, I believe that Santa exists. I affirm a particular fact in my brain. I believe Santa exists. Okay? That's what we think faith is. And we think often that faith means believing that something is true without any evidence. It's not what faith means. Zechariah had all kinds of evidence. He had the whole history of Israel. He had an angel standing right in front of him in the temple of God. He had tons of evidence. And he probably believed that God, he almost certainly believed that God could do this. He maybe even believed as a fact that God would do this. But that's not all he's being asked to do. Faith is not just believing in your brain that a fact is true, but it is acting on that fact. It means doing something because of that belief. That phrase, leap of faith, it comes from a theologian named Soren Kierkegaard. He wasn't talking about, there's no evidence, so I'm just going to believe it for no reason. He's talking about how you can get all the evidence and weigh all the arguments, everything up in your head, but at some point you have to decide, yep, I'm actually going to risk it and take a step on this thing. A great example is Peter stepping out of the boat onto the water. He had lots of evidence. He knew who Jesus was. He knew that Jesus, he could see Jesus doing it. He knew Jesus could let him do it. But until he actually steps out on the water, I mean, that, it still takes that extra, you know, that, that belief to risk his, his life to step out on the water. For Zechariah, the catching point was not the intellectual belief of whether something is true, but is, are you willing to go out and tell everyone what the angel has heard, knowing that if God's not right, there's going to be bad consequences for you? So obeying God's will required faith, which for the purposes of today, I'm going to define as taking real action on God's promises. But Zechariah wasn't willing to take the risk. That's where he got stuck. And that's where so many of us get stuck. It's easy to say, see, at a certain point, Christianity decided that we would define our faith as the facts that we believe about God. The same point when they decided we're going to start using creeds because we want to differentiate ourselves from the people who believe different facts about God. Before that, your faith meant who you trusted in and who you obeyed. And so the faith of Christianity was Jesus. Jesus is king, and I'm going to follow him and obey him to the point of risking my life with the lions. Right? I believe so strongly that Jesus really is king, that no matter what Caesar does to try and get me to say otherwise, I'm not going to change what I say. 
Faith is taking action on God's promises, and that's where Zechariah got stuck. And that's where we all get stuck. It's one thing to say, be grateful that God is generous. It's another thing to say, okay, I'm going to be generous with what I have because God is generous. I'm going to spend my money as if God will take care of me. I'm going to forgive others because God forgives me. I'm going to love my enemies and trust that God will look after me, even though every fiber of my being wants to defend myself from my enemies. This is what faith means in in the Bible. And Zechariah hesitates. And this is another weird moment in the story because it seems like God punishes him. God seems to be, Gabriel seems to be angry. Like you can almost hear the indignation in his voice. He says, I am Gabriel who stands in front of, and now you won't be able to talk uh, for a year. And it sounds like a punishment. But that's not actually what's going on. He says, you will be silent and not be able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Now the interesting thing is, I want you to think, what would have happened if he hadn't struck him mute? Zechariah comes out, he does his regular blessing, says nothing to anybody, goes home. His wife gets pregnant, baby is born. On the eighth day, now we know the baby has survived childbirth, and it's time to name it. Now, all of a sudden, he's going to say, oh, hey, guess what? Turns out, like, ten months ago, an angel showed up and told me that this baby is a miracle baby. I, I knew it was going to happen all along, and this baby is going to be deliverance of all Israel. Yeah. Uh-huh. Sure, sure, Zechariah. Everybody thinks that their kid is special. Sorry, we've heard this before. You're like, eh, yeah, okay. There's, no, there's nothing supernatural about that. There's nothing that would call Israel to take notice. But God strikes him mute. And so Zechariah, he has one job coming out of that temple, and it is, it is speaking. He's got to come out and talk and he's got to bless the people. He's basically got to carry the blessing of God from the temple out and speak it onto everybody, and he can't talk. So people are going to notice this, right? When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. Now everybody who was there, they know something happened in the temple. They don't know what yet, but they know something happened. And they're probably going to go home and say, hey, you're never going to guess what happened to the priest while he was in the temple. He got struck mute. We don't know what happened, but he did it. Yeah, he, he talked just fine. He, the sermon was way too long. And then he went in, and when he came out, he couldn't talk at all. Which means it's kind of a bookmark. People have, it has publicly been acknowledged that God did something in the temple at that moment. They just don't know what yet. So what's happening when he strikes him mute is that God sealed his mouth so he could have a second chance to fulfill his purpose. Zechariah will still be able to pass along the message that God gave him in a way that maintains its integrity because he's been struck mute in the middle of the temple. So, you know... Ten months after the thing in the temple, the baby is born. Eight days later, they come to circumcise the baby and to give the baby a name. And they ask Elizabeth what to name him. And she says, John. And they say, that's a silly name. Your family doesn't use that name. So they play that old, if mom says no, ask dad trick. So they go over to Zechariah and they try and get the right answer out of him. And it says, they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. Interesting side note, that means that he wasn't just mute, he was deaf. 
He couldn't hear because I had to talk to him with sign language. So he spent 10 months, couldn't talk, couldn't hear. He asked for a writing tablet, and to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is John. God is gracious. Immediately his mouth was opened, and his tongue was set free, and he began to speak, praising God. All the neighbors were filled with awe, and throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all these things. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, what then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was, on, was with him. So notice what happens here. Because God struck him mute, and then all of a sudden, when he says his name is John, he can talk again, people are going to say, hey, what happened? Well, they would say, hey, what happened, except that this guy hasn't been able to talk for 10 months, so they're not going to get a chance to ask him what happened, because all he's going to want to do is tell them what happened, because he hasn't been able to say anything for so long. And now, because he's going to have to explain what happened in the temple. Well, there was this angel. And now there's this credibility to what he's saying, because people know something happened. Something happened then, and had something to do with the name of his child. Well, what was his name? His name is God is Gracious, because God is being gracious to my wife and I, and to all of Israel. And the result of this, notice, is exactly what God wanted to happen from the beginning, which is now everybody knows something's up with that John kid. I don't know what's going to happen with him, but watch him, because God did something weird. And, and I didn't understand the, the poem that Zechariah wrote about it, that he says like every day. I didn't understand it, but something's going to happen from that. And they're watching, and they're waiting. And the implication seems to be that when John finally steps out and starts doing his ministry, a lot of people are going, oh yeah, I remember something weird happened with that John kid. Maybe we should pay attention. I remember that whole, my dad told me that the guy went mute in the temple. And it sets the stage for what God is doing as, as John the Baptist preaches and prepares people for the coming of Jesus. So Zechariah ultimately obeyed God and testified to the Israelites about the promises of God. And the main form in which he did this was a poem, or the main form that we still have, like I said, I'm sure that he just wouldn't shut up after that. He's just constantly talking about it. But he wrote a poem as well. And I don't know whether the Holy Spirit just made the poem jump out of his mouth fully formed. I kind of like the idea that the Holy Spirit guided him as he spent years working on a poem and kind of crafting it. And the Holy Spirit led him that way. But this is what it says. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy on our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. The poem that Christians have been using as a prayer basically ever since. Talking about how through the birth of this child, he knew that God was going to restore all of Israel and that the grace he experienced personally was an expression of the grace that was available to all of God's people. Zechariah is not one of the figures here. But I think that he sets the stage for us as we consider what it means to journey toward Christmas as we think about faith. That faith, that decision to 
to make, take a step that has consequences. Trusting in God, that is so crucial for us as we look at Christmas because this is what the world is unwilling to do. The world wants to believe in Christmas, but it just wants Christmas to happen without having to take any risks. We want Christmas to happen because we sang the songs that we love to sing and we put up the lights that look pretty and we watched the movies that we love and they made us feel good. And so we just want something to make us feel peaceful and feel goodwill. We don't want to have to actually do anything in our culture. But in the church, we know that the promises of Christmas don't just happen. We have to choose to be a part of them. Zechariah was called by God through an angel, and he still had the choice not to be a part of it. Because he, he, there was still the same risk. When he wrote, his name is John, yeah, I mean, on the one hand, you say, well, he gets to talk again, although he gets to talk again, but it still has the same risk because it still created the same sensation. And yet he was willing to do something that involved risk to fulfill the mission of God. The promise of Christmas is not just that the songs and the season and the feel will change us, but that our relationship with this child will change us. Which means that we have to make a choice to have a relationship with Jesus. We have to make a choice to be a part of his kingdom instead of our own. We have to make a choice to share his values instead of our own. But Christmas doesn't just happen to you. You're not transformed just because it's December. The season of Christmas reminds us of the source of our transformation, and you, you can be transformed as you choose to follow Jesus. So we receive the promises of Christmas by accepting the gift of Jesus and the transformation that he brings. That's what makes the difference. There are no songs, there are no decorations, there are no lights that change people. I hate to tell you, no number of Hallmark Christmas movies are actually going to change you. Sorry, I'm sorry, Vicki. No number of Christmas cookies. It, it, I mean, and I think one of the... Have you ever wondered why we get so passionate about Christmas? Why it has such a powerful pull on us? Because for a month, we believe that we can be who God always designed us to be, whether we recognize that that's what it is or not. I think that's why Christmas, like, like Easter doesn't have a particularly strong pull on the rest of the culture, right? But Christmas does. Because Easter is all about the cost. All about, you can't really, there's hardly anything left of Easter if you don't talk about the king that we're all supposed to follow. And Christmas, we get for a month to experience a taste of what we're all supposed to be. And it, it's a powerful pull on us. But the only way we actually become Christmas people is by being transformed by Jesus. That's why peace on earth and goodwill toward men hasn't happened just through the singing of those songs. Because the peace on earth and the goodwill toward men, the goodwill toward people comes through Jesus. That's what they were announcing. They weren't announcing a special season. They were announcing the birth of a child. And ultimately, the, the world is transformed by Christmas. Through, the world is transformed through faith, meaning the faith of people who have received Christ and are willing to act 
on the promises of Jesus in conspicuous ways. That means when we're willing to actually do things differently because Jesus was born. Because Jesus is king. When we're willing to be faithful, we're willing to govern our pocketbooks as if God is king. We're willing to govern our relationships as if God is king. Choose our careers, choose our partners, choose our, our neighborhoods, choose our relationships, choose how we live as if we're part of a greater kingdom. And this is something we're going to be talking a lot about through the next month and as we go into next year, that um, following Jesus has to involve changing the decisions that we make. And it's really hard because those decisions have real consequences. When you bring Jesus into a relationship with a coworker or a friend, it'll change some things. And I don't just mean handing them a tract or trying to do a, a, a pitch to convert them. But as you um, let your allegiance to Jesus govern your decisions, it will change things. You'll give away money that you otherwise would have had as a buffer. You will take risks in your relationships and your friendships. You won't participate in things that you otherwise would have felt pressured to participate in. You will um, disagree with things that people say around you when otherwise you would have kept your mouth shut. You will speak up about the hope that you have when otherwise it would have been too uncomfortable to say something. And there will be consequences. In some cases, it will be the negative consequences that you didn't want to happen. And in some cases, it will be the best possible consequences that ever could happen. And the whole mix in between. But if we're going to see the world transformed by the birth of Christ, it means we have to choose to be a part of it. We have to choose to journey to the birth of Christ. We have to choose to be one of the people around the Christ child. And then to carry that news out. Amen? I invite the worship team back.